Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Story Club podcast. And today's episode is featuring Faris Stingray. Now, Faris is somebody I linked up with during the pandemic. I think we first started speaking August 2020. So fresh out of lockdown, things were still quite raw. And I came across Faris's content because he did a video where he was walking the streets and going up to people because of his experiences as a presenter and he was talking to them, asking them how they were doing, how their mental health had been, how the last year had been on them, and it was just some really powerful stuff. And through that, me and Faris have worked on a variety of things together, so it was only natural that I wanted to get him on the podcast. And we cover so many aspects from his life. Choosing a path outside of his culture where they expected him to go straight into work from school or go down certain educational paths, getting confident, speaking in front of a camera, karma, how he's seen that impact in his life when he's done good, good's returned to him, when he's done bad, he's definitely seen that return. And being in the party scene quite a bit, you know, he's had experience in being used, people wanting to get to know him for the wrong reasons, and then also just how he balances all those aspects of his life. As always, we're just going to jump straight on in. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, allow me to introduce Mr. Faris Stingray. Now, I've always asked Faris, am I saying your surname right? Ray Rai, the family say Rai. Um, like, people who aren't related to me say Ray. There's literally personal preference. There's no right or wrong. Good. I remember sending you a voice note a while ago and you just patched it. You didn't. I was like, oh, how'd you say it? And you just moved on. I was like, <laughs> I was like I'm going to get this wrong forever. <laughs> well, I just to clear that up now. Yeah, it is literally. My mum says Ray, but my grandparents say Rai. Um, it's, it's a really funny story, actually, because when my granddad came to the country from Kenya, well, because we originated in Nairobi, okay, they cool. come from Pakistan. And then when they moved to the to London, um, they had to fill in, you know, paperwork to get the visas and get their British passport. They they just, back then, they didn't really fill in forms properly. And they just richly, he, say, he said to them, it was Ray, R-A-Y. But they just wrote down our R-A-I. So our surname has just become a, a, a name. Someone else made it up for you. It's, it's a name <laughs> that's made up. It's a Ray is actually the... Indian surname R A Y. Okay. But um, R A I is just what they scribble down in the form, and we just went with it, and now our whole family just have that surname. Fair enough. That was a nice bit of family history yeah. there. So, <laughs> can you please introduce yourself for people who may not know who you are? Yes. So my name is Faris. I'm a social media content creator. I would say I produce videos for brands. Um, I present videos for events, and I kind of just navigate my way through the media and entertainment industry, uh, teaming up with like-minded organizations to create meaningful content. So let's go a wee bit back. The podcast is called The Story Club Fire, so this is the perfect opportunity for you to just tell your story because you're always so busy interviewing other people, asking them what they're up to. Mm -hmm. Let's say, give you that platform to talk about you. So I say, if you can go back to, what was your path? Like say from school, did you go to university? I don't even think if I know that. So this is really interesting for me. And um, <clears throat> first of all, thank you just for letting me come on to this. It's an amazing setup and just talk to you. Um, as you said, I'm normally the guy asking the questions. Um, so my mind is always just focused on understanding who they are, what they do, preparing questions. So to be on the other side of it is just great because I've never been in this situation. So I'm, I'm really excited to see how the next... Glad to be your first. Yes, 100%. And... I would say, you know, my journey has kind of always been like an untold story. It's something that close friends and family know. Mm. Um, but even they're still trying to figure it out just as I am. But uh, yeah, I've never really had a chance to really explain it. And I guess it's because I'm always, I'm still in the process of figuring it out until I'm at a stage where I'm comfortable enough to be like, right, this is who I am and this is how it's happened. Mm. Because I'm in that process, but you have to appreciate the journey, right? So it's always good to explain where, where you're at in that current present moment. 100%. So. I've I've kind of just gone into this world and embraced what's come my way. And a lot of that is from just, you know, letting be what's meant to be. And then a lot of that is also balanced with going out and putting yourself in a position that you know is an area you want to be in. Mm. So when I was at college, I, I studied TV and film production. That was the first time I had chosen a subject. That's the first time I'd gone and picked something that appealed to me. So until the school- What was it about them that appealed? I was always like the first friend um, to like 
used the features on their camera phone and was always the first one to kind of do funny, quirky edits and use things like that. And back then there wasn't much, you know, we were, I had Blackberries back then. Yeah, yeah. So it was like, why is Faris just always picking up the phone? Why are you just filming me? But then looking back, my friends would always laugh and be like, oh, I'm so glad you filmed that. That was so funny last well, night. Well, because that stuff was weird back then, especially as a guy. You know, it wasn't about sharing. It wasn't about collecting Not content. People like put the camera away and then you show them the photos and the videos a year later and they're like, oh, I'm glad you caught that. Literally. And I've always been that guy, like going into school, college, I'd always be that guy that, you know, would pick up the phone, film something funny, even if we got told off for it by some teachers, got told to delete things. And, you know, a few occasions we'd get in trouble because, you know, filming silly things in class and then, you know, doing silly things. But the, the bottom line is I'd always be the one that would think to do it. And then later on, we'd laugh about it together. And this was like the MySpace days. This is the Bebo days. This is like, you know, when I was like the first one to have Facebook in my year. Yeah. And people just didn't understand social media. And I'd love the fact that I could just, you know, post, share what I'm up to. And when I get like highlights thrown back at me on your, you know, on your newsfeed, it shows you what you did five years ago, 10 years ago, what you posted. I'm like, I'm sometimes a bit surprised. I'm like, wow, no one else would even do that back then. Yeah. So I've always been into media and then I knew that I wanted to be creative. So I studied TV and film production at college mm. and um, did a three-year course where I just basically learned how to edit, you know, in Final Cut Pro. We learned how to operate ca cameras and we also had a few modules where you'd have to write, produce, direct, and um, I would just be, you know, loving it because our modules would literally be what I've already been doing with my mates. Yeah. But this time, just make it a bit more formatted into a unit that we were studying. So throughout college, really enjoyed just studying the aspects of media, really enjoyed learning more about TV, film. Um, you know, I, I really understood the difference between like small things like what's a, what's a producer, what's a director, what's their roles, what does that involve? And I really like asked inquisitive questions to my lecturers, like, how do you get hired to do this? Like, and how do you be self-employed? So then by the end of college, I decided I want to study at university. And then when I got to university, I went to Portsmouth. Uh, I had five, I actually had five options on my UCAS, right? You know, you pick five unis you want to go to. Yeah. Four rejected me and I only got Portsmouth University because <laughs> my grades weren't that good. So but I, it's insane. The stuff that you were going to be studying was what you'd semi-mastered at the time yeah like, I, I was really passionate about it so I just wanted to make sure that I stay in that lane I was so scared of drifting off um I'll explain why shortly but from that sorry what do you mean drifting off though I didn't want to drift off media and right, work okay. on something that I'm not passionate about mm. like especially when it comes to like Asian culture right it's such a common thing to see people do things that they don't want to do just because their parents have expectations on them is this like the doctor and lawyer kind of path yeah Jewish families are the same, man. Really? Oh, 100%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Everyone likes, it's because the parents like to brag, oh, my son's a doctor, oh, yeah. my son's a lawyer, that kind of thing. Exactly. And that, that kind of creates this world that you don't want to be in. And I've seen so many people do it, and I've seen it happen to my family as well. I've got cousins that, you know, I love to, you know, with all my heart, but I just, I just know that they were pushed to be in certain situations or to marry certain people or to go down a, a road only because it's what the habit and the norm was in my culture. Do you think they're unhappy now in some ways or? I think people learn to be happy, uh, which is really sad. I think people learn to accept and embrace um, the experiences they've had and the choices they've had to make, even if they don't want to make those choices. And what happens is over time, you get responsibilities land on your shoulders until the commitment becomes so overwhelming that you have to just sort of settle with what you've got. And I think that's what limits people's potential and gets people at this stage where they sort of go, right, I can't turn back the clock, um, but I've got a kid now, I've got a job now, I've got a mortgage now. Uh, I, it's not just about me anymore. I have to you know, provide for my family. And then they sort of find a way to just sort of settle down throughout life. And I think that's, that's really heartbreaking. So it gives them like a new purpose, but you use the word a couple of times, they're settling. Settling. And I think that being complacent is a, just an absolute killer, Johnny. I mm. think that's my biggest fear, just settling for what I've got, settling for what I've achieved and just kind of not fulfilling my potential. And I feel like potential is like an endless journey that we can continue to grow um, depending on the decisions you've made and the experiences you've had. Sometimes it's out of our control, which is no point worrying about because you can't, deal the hand you've been dealt but mm. the things that are within your control i believe are absolute essential 
to grab with both hands and steer your life in the direction that you want to go. So with all that said and going back to you choosing the media path, mm -hmm. how did your parents take that? So my parents divorced when I was five because my dad's Indian and my mum's uh, Pakistani. So there's a culture clash there between uh, Sikhs and Muslims. And um, when they when they divorced, I, I grew up kind of seeing my dad on the weekends and at birthdays and weddings. When it was time to go to university, I was at a stage where I, I was talking to both parents. I was living in my mum's, but I was still quite close to my dad. Hmm. So when he found out that I wanted to go to university, we really fell out. It was a, a stage in my life where I actually stopped talking to my dad for the first time in like over a year. And it was probably the worst time because, you know, you need your parents support when you're doing something as big as going to university. Right. Why? Because of the course you chose, though, or you were going to university? Both. Um, I was the first person in my family to go to university. I was the first person in my family to want to study media. And I was the first person in my family who wanted to be self-employed. What did he think the other option was? What did he want you to do? I guess for my dad, he wanted to just make sure that he's not chasing his tail. He knows he's going to be earning regular money and it's something sustainable or tangible, which I completely understand. But because his mindset is so um, traditional Asian culture, mm. anything that wasn't a full time job would be ludicrous to him. Oh, so he wanted you to go straight into job 17, 18. He didn't even want me to go to university. Yeah, right. OK, exactly. So. My mum was the only one who was like supportive as a parent to say like, like he wants to go to university. He's passionate about media and he's confident that he can get work from this afterwards. And yeah, like my dad tried to understand it. Even to this day, I don't really think he really gets it, if I'm honest. Yeah. But, but is he, he's seen you're making money out of it. So is there more acceptance there still? Yeah, there is definitely more acceptance. I've got cousins on my dad's side of the family who come back to me on like birthdays and Christmas and I still see some of them sometimes and they're like yeah we've shown your dad like some of your stuff what you've been up to and what you're working on and your trips abroad and you know he's seen some of your content and he's like oh it's the boy what's the boy doing these days and he, apparently he, he has this kind of feeling of proud and guilt at the same time okay so the proudness is obviously like the stubborn Asian culture that I'm talking about, it's in all dads, we have to learn to accept it. It's just a thing that we can't take personally. It's just this thing drilled into them where they have to just sort of, they never want to admit when they're wrong or say sorry. Sure, but they all also, dads. All of that. Yeah, yeah. But because he's like seen me on some radio stations, because he's um, uh, heard about me doing something on TV or because he's heard that I got paid to go and travel to a really nice country, he sort of goes, oh, fair enough. Oh, you know, uh, I wish him the best or, you know, um, I'll leave him to it kind mm. of thing. Never really got like a message of closure or sorry or, you know, fair enough. Or But I, I, I don't, I've stopped looking for it. I, I've stopped looking for it for a while now because I know I'm doing it. I know that I'm, I, I don't nothing to prove. But yeah, for a lot, for a long time, mate, it was very, like, I was very bitter towards my dad. I was very like, you didn't, you weren't there when I needed you. Yeah. And now I had to go and do it myself because my mum's a single parent, you know, she's got my sister to look out for. She's got her own job and finances to worry about. I didn't want to be more stress on her. So I just kind of went into the world um, studying university from my choice mm. and obviously that is you know covered by the government and then I got my own um, side hustles or even like part-time jobs per se at university to keep myself going and um, my mum's like never really forgiven my dad for that she's always been like he's got money he's got resources he's got connections I don't know why he's such a yeah yeah it's a bit shit he never supported you for sure. yeah of course yeah. and um, back then it was really shitty but now looking back and I'm kind of more comfortable earning my money, securing my own work, mm. having my own place to stay. I just kind of, I don't, it's, it's that pain has sort of like left my heart, if that makes sense. Fully, is there still like a wee bit of resentment? These things are quite hard to move from, so. They are, but because I know my dad so well and everyone in the family knows him so well, I don't take it personally. Right. Because in the end, he will be the one that will kind of stick with it more than me. Because, you know, it must be hard to watch your sons grow up and now he's got a daughter as well and he's remarried and he's now, he's getting older and he must be seeing things and he's a bit like, oh, he knows he can't turn back the clock. Um, I've tried to make of it a few times, but the fact that he kind of sees that I'm doing things and he's hearing about it from other people in the family is kind of like a way of me knowing that he knows. And that's, and that's enough for me to kind of, you know, feel um, peace and be content within myself and my relationship with my dad. Yeah, good. So you were in university. Yes. Did you think you were want to go down the tv path did you think you wanted to go into a tv network or was content kind of becoming a big thing at that time 
So when I went to university, which was 2011, 2012. Sorry, mate, 2007. So I feel it's hard to remember when that was. <laughs> so, so 10, 12 years ago. Yes, yeah. wow, over a decade. But that's when I went to Ports of Uni. And like I said, I had five UCAS options, four rejected me. And then Ports of University was the only university that appealed to me and had the course that I wanted to do. And, you know, beggars can't be choosers. So I, I went over to the induction of my mum. I still remember it like it was yesterday. Fell in love with the city. I love that it was a small little town. I really wanted to go to university where everyone knows everyone and you can kind of establish yourself as a student. And, yeah. and I basically embraced the course for what it was. Um, really cool people on, you know, who I met studying the same thing. And over the space of the three years, I, I remember so clearly that I started to grow more and more of like a burning passion for talking. And just, I'll never forget that everyone on my course wanted to be a writer, editor, director, or producer. And so they should, because that's what TV and film is all about. Yeah. But there was one unit that popped up where it was called the broadcast unit. And we had to really sit in front of the camera and put a TV show together. That was it. And we could all make up our own concept. It could be like a prank show. It could be like a student radio. It could be whatever you want. But they needed people in front of the camera. And if you weren't willing to do it, you had to go and hire or, or just, you know, ask act one of the people in the acting courses to do yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And no one wanted to be in front of the camera in my course. Absolutely no one. It was like the most daunting thing. We struggled to put our hands up to answer questions. Everyone was that shit scared to, like, have the attention on them. Yeah. And uh, I, I don't blame them. Some of our lecturers were so intense. It's like a massive room and we're, we're, everyone wants to sit at the back and no one wants to sit at the front. And... um so you can imagine to, to want to be on camera is like a big deal, right? Did you want to be on camera or were you just like, I want to get out of my comfort zone, I'm going to go for it? Both. I think it was both, Johnny, man. Like I remember that I, there's something in me, right, that's always said and believed that I could have some kind of skill, talent or charisma in front of camera and I could use that to generate work or create content. And it was, uh, it was brewing inside me since college and only at university, till the end of university, did I finally push it out and say, this is what I want to do. This is who I want to be. And it, it, it was insecurity and fear and doubt that 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 stopped me. Um, it, well, so uh, this project came along. Yeah, this, this, this unit came along. And I said, I don't mind presenting in front of camera and being part of this talk show. And people were like, really? You want to be in front of camera? But then one of my lecturers was like, first, what do you want to do? Because I feel like you have got personality. You could be in front of the camera. You can talk. And then a few other course members started to say it, like Faris, like the way you are on a night out or, you know, in the group chat or the things you post on social media anyway, just do it. So I did the unit in front of, in front of the camera and I fell in love with it, Johnny. Like, I loved the fact that that was part of my course and I could justify my, my credits and my role to sit and just talk and still be aware of production and what's going on. I'd still be like helping on the edit. I'd still be writing the treatments to people and I'd still even be helping them produce the whole concept. Mm -hmm. But... I just really enjoyed being in front of the camera and just being able to talk and express myself and create comedy in a way that made people feel comfortable. So there was no intimidation looking into the no. big dark lens? No. Your personality didn't take time to warm up to it? It just came naturally? Yeah, yeah. It That's wasn't good. even, yeah. And even reading the auto cue on some kind of like the news reports, um, I would like kind of pick it up and then realize that, okay, it's not just reading. It's about making it look like you're not reading. So kind of mentally be aware of what's popping up but kind of let your personality take over to make it look like you're having a normal conversation with your mates to kind of engage the audience or whoever's watching on the student channel feel like they're just listening to a mate chat to them so so, so what did you do for the project then because you said people could pick anything it could be pranks it could yeah be what did you we do? did pranks yeah that's was the, it pranks? yeah okay there you go that, so, was, that was my guess yeah that's <laughs> the example i used so basically we we um we did like a prank um show where it was like if you get the answer right you win a point and if you get it wrong you get like a pie in the face and we had like pies lined up and it was such a messy production especially in the studio but i remember when we finished that unit um it went really well you know i passed i got good grades and i told myself um i'll never forget actually um johnny towards the end of the third and final year um when we finished our units uh I, one of our lecturers sat us down and he said most of you are gonna drop off most of you are going to go down the safe route most of you are going to get full-time jobs if you want to succeed in tv and film you have to go put yourself out there you have to network you have to really be passionate about this enough to sacrifice so much just mm. for the pure passion and i remember like everyone was looking at each other like f this like i'm, I'm not even people had already convinced themselves that they're not going to study media before they even finished the degree right. people had already dropped out the course got smaller 
I think there's five people now who have continued to work in media or entertainment or TV since graduating. Well, because creativity, jobs like that, art, whatever, crafts, like even from school, yeah, that was always the stuff that was deprioritized. Mm -hmm. it's always the, it was always the stuff you were made to believe isn't what matters. Obviously, current generations with social media and everything now and TikTok, mm -hmm. that's proven to not be the case. But back in the day, the priorities were math, English, desk job, so literally then it was a big risk massive risk bro or it was made to feel like one even if it wasn't yeah exactly that it was made to feel like one even though it wasn't and for me it was the pressure and expectations of my family whether they mean to or not obviously the cultural clashes of my choices um like the the, the path i went down um the industry i want to work in the choice of employment, like just being self-employed was just like, what are you doing? Mm. And then on top of that, I've chosen an industry which is hard enough as it is. So I was just like, I felt like I, I hate breeding like the victim mentality and I will never let that define me. But it was like, oh my God, I'm going against everything here. Like I literally felt like you're just, did you really want to make life hard for yourself? Well, so did you think about quitting at that point? If no. everyone else was doing it. No. No. There's what there's what made you push past it? There's something in me that's just been so stubborn. Um, it's always told me that you're going to be all right. Was uh, it a prove people wrong thing or just a not giving up thing? Both. Okay. Um, the, the, the stubbornness in me loves proving people wrong. Um, I'm fed up of, I was fed up of doubting myself and I was fed up of being told that I can't do something. And on top of that, it was this inner belief that's always just kept me going. And I don't know what it is. It's just, I've just, um, even when I've just had lack of confidence most of my life, I still had this little thing inside me that just always sort of reassured me in a really quiet, whispery way. Like, you're going to be all right. Like, you're going to be all right, I promise you. And that's always just made me go, all right, try and get another job. All right, we'll keep the self-employed thing going. And even when things haven't looked very promising, I've always had this almost, it's like a, I can't, I can't, I don't want to ever use the word comfort because I've never felt comfortable enough to not work hard. I've never felt comfortable enough to feel like I can stop. But there's been something in me that's always kind of said, I've got your back. And I don't know, I'm not a very religious person. So I say, I'm not a very spiritual person. So I say, but I've always had this belief that there is something or someone out there just sort of, that's just got my back a little bit. And I always kind of make like mental bargains with them and say like look if you prove to me that this is working i will keep going and i'll work on meaningful things and i'll try and provide as much value as i can to people around me and i'll try and put good positive energy into the universe and when i keep making these kind of bargains more things just keep happening and i've always wondered like is, is this real or is this something that i've just created in my head but whether it is or isn't it's working and i'm happy to keep going and i feel like if you kind of create that kind of a bargain with karma you're always going to be all right because if you're doing bad things you know in your heart that you're doing bad things if you've done wrong you know you've done wrong you can tell yourself that you know whatever narrative you want in your head to make yourself feel better but in the end karma will always catch up you can't outrun karma so if you if you're if you're doing people wrong if you're lying if you're kind of trying to cheat take the shortcuts in life if you know that you have probably been ignorant and selfish if you know that you're doing other people wrong or bad that's just going to come back to you. Mm. So you're only doing yourself wrong, bad or dirty. Whereas I've been aware of that. And when I know that I've been a bit of a dick or if I've effed up, it always comes back to bite me. And mm. then I, I, I accept it. I don't, I don't act like a victim. I go, yeah, I deserve that. I knew that was coming because I did that. I did that. I did that. That's because of that. But when now I kind of go, all right, I'm putting good energy into the universe and I know the intentions I have to do things whether I'm doing the right things for the wrong reasons or the wrong things for the right reasons, I know what my intentions are. When you know what your intentions are, you know what you try to do, whether you achieve it or not. And that's the energy that I feel comes back to you. If you do good things, karma will give you good things back. If you do bad things, karma will give you bad things back. So I've, I've just constantly had this like bargain where some people want to call it the universe, some people want to call it God. I, I don't know yet what my belief is, but whatever it is, there's something or someone there that I've, I'm making an arrangement with. And the more I achieve, it's like they give me a chance to go prove it. Let's see if you're a man of your word. And then I go ahead and do something good. I go ahead and use that to create another opportunity. I bring other people in and then more doors open. So I feel like, you know, it's like a video game. I'm like, I'm proving what I'm saying. And then let's see how far we can go. So in your final year of school, mm. well, university, mm. 
you just you were doing the right things and you knew you were on the right path so there was you weren't questioning it yeah but there's still a lot of lack of clarity johnny like in my early stages the most lack of clarity you know like um I'm well, so this would have been 2014 when you were wrapping up uni was it yeah 2014 okay 2014 towards the end of my course and i remember not knowing what the hell I'm going to do. Because we just had that chat of my tutor telling us that we need to go out there. Mm. I was already trying to apply for internships and work, you know, as a runner for production companies. And I was just like, wow, I really have to move out of Portsmouth. I was obsessed with Portsmouth, by the way. In those three years, I became a bit of a face. I became a promoter. I knew everyone. It was a small little community. Right, okay. And that was the best thing that's ever happened to me. And I didn't know how I was going to let go of that, move back to my mum's in London, and now justify to my parents that I decided to do this. And now how am I going to make it work? And I didn't want to prove my dad right that I was just chasing my tail. That course, yeah. He was telling my mum, you know, he's just gone to uni to party. You know, party time's over now. What are you going to do now? And I was just like, man, like, what am I going to do? So I'll never forget my house. My house um, agreement ended earlier for my student accommodation. So in order to stay until the next freshers arrived, because, you know, in September, the new year starts in uni, right? Yeah. So in order to do that, because I wanted to just enjoy one more freshers as a graduate, which ain't a really a good look, bro, because you're older than everyone. Yeah. I My friend who did another, who did a longer course, Josh, he said, you can stay at my sofa. I've got a spare room. So I stayed at his for a bit because he was like, what are you going to do next? And I said to myself, I'm going to take the uni equipment out one more time and create a concept that I've always wanted to do, but I never did it for at university. And they said to us, they said, make the most out of the uni equipment. You get it up to one year after you graduate. And after that, you know, you can't take out any cameras or anything. So one guy who stayed down in Portsmouth even after graduation, his name was Alex. He always wanted to take the camera out and, and film fun stuff. I said, you take the camera out. I'll take the microphone out. Let's go interview the new freshers and just basically start asking them random questions. I've always seen stuff on YouTube. I never really saw people repeat that concept in the UK yet. Yeah. And um, back then, Facebook viral videos were the thing. There was no TikTok. No one was, barely anyone was on Instagram. It was all about Facebook views, Facebook, right? Sure, yeah, yeah. So he was like, yeah, sure, let's do it. So on the Freshers week, I planned out, right, this is Freshers Fair, this is Freshers Rave, this is Freshers Ball, this is the Freshers, um, you know, um, Sports Society Night. And I said, every day we go out for an hour and we just interview all the students. They're going to be drunk. They're going to be loud. They're going to be saying wild shit. Let's just go and talk to them. Yeah. And it's, I trust me, we know Portsmouth like the back of our hands. Like, none of the venues are going to have, you know, care about us filming. We know all the promoters. We're going to have so many personal relationships with the Freshers that we've already met. This is going to be gold. So we went out. The first two nights got absolutely awful. Like it started raining, like it was bad weather. He didn't want to get the camera wet because we owed it to the university. We ended up going home early and just getting chips and chicken. I remember being like, was this a good idea? And we we're like, no, we'll keep going. Well, this was probably still a point where people weren't used to having a camera in their face. They weren't recording every <laughs> moment of their lives. So they were probably like, Who's this guy with a camera? Whereas Who, now people see something like that, like, oh, it's a YouTuber. Yeah. And they run up to it now. It's easier now to yeah. do it. But back then it was Stress, Johnny. Sure. We got told by one of the halls of residence, um, what are you doing? You're not allowed to film here. And we were kind of like, well, we're not technically students, so we can't really get told off anymore. Let's just fully commit to this idea and get the concept done. We were like, not getting much, bro. Like we were literally like trying and trying and just hitting brick walls. By the third day, we went out with the microphone and I was like, what's up guys, it's Faris and I'm here at Ports of Freshers. To That's chat your people. welcome lane, even after all these years. Yeah. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. It all started there. We went out. And gold just started coming up to us. Like we had people start saying crazy stuff. There was girls jumping on front, like saying really wild shit. There were some people saying that they would shag their tutor to get a first. There were some people saying like, this is my message to my ex. There were some people like doing um, rap challenges, like doing really funny stuff that everything I knew Portsmouth University as a culture did. Right. And why it's so famously known for his nightlife. I captured that on camera in a week. And that's what everyone wanted to see. So we had this amazing footage that we achieved at Freshers, right? Then me and Alex sat down and we edited it together. And I looked at the three minute video that we had created and I went, this is gold. Like this is gonna go viral. Cause, cause, cause it's literally first years, second years, third years, all just out and just chatting crap and having a laugh. And, and like you said, it's a small community. So everyone would recognize the people who are on it. So it had that real local feel. Exactly yeah. that. And I remember we posted it on Facebook and I got all the promoters to share it. Cause I knew everyone, I basically knew this is what it was. I knew that I had too good a network and too good a, access to resources in Portsmouth to waste. I couldn't just go back to London empty-handed because I'd be like everyone else in my course trying to wonder what the hell they're doing next with their lives. So I created that video and we posted it and we got everyone to share it. 
And I swear to God, it went like 10,000 views, 50,000 views, 100,000 views, share, 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 share. My friend request hit limit. I had to make a Facebook page just to call it Faris Stingray because Faris Ray had capped at 5,000. Right. I had messages from people saying, bro, your video is being shared on this page, bro. Someone shared it onto a student channel, bro. It's on YouTube. I was like, within a few days, by the way, this is in a few days. Freshers were still going on. Okay, yeah, yeah. Because it's like a two week thing. I was like, oh my God. I kind of knew this could happen, but I didn't expect it to happen like this. We went out that night in Portsmouth, yeah, because we still knew all the promoters, so we had the hookups and stuff. And I couldn't go five minutes without someone going, we just watched your freshest video. Sure. Someone else saying, oh my God, we just literally like pre-drunk watching your video. It's hilarious. Someone coming up to me, oh my God, my course mates in your video. Like literally we were like, oh my God, we've created something mad here. And long story short, I kind of stayed for the remaining of Freshers, embraced what we have created. It kept snowballing and going and going and going everywhere. Like it kept getting shared everywhere. And I remember waking up one morning towards the end of that Freshers and I got an email from Lad Bible saying, hi, Faris, we've just seen your video. Uh, unfortunately, we can't post it as it goes. A few of the um, clips go against our terms and conditions, mm. but we'd love to just have you as our on the streets guy who goes around and just does some right, interview. Cool. Well, that preempts my next question, which was going to be, this is cool, viral video, but what was the subsequent result? And it was, you got a job with Lad Bible. Yeah. So as soon as- Based I'd... in Portsmouth, sorry, or did you have to move back to London? So Lad Bible based in Manchester. Okay. That's where their office is, was, and is actually, still is. And they, uh, they, they just said to me, why don't you come up to Manchester, uh, meet the team, stay for a few days, we'll put you up, pay for a cost, and you just go out and do some videos for us. And at the time, Drake had just released Hotline Bling which was like a really viral big song. Yeah. And they said, why don't you go and ask the, um, the people of Manchester uh, what they think about Drake Hotline Bling and even try and get them to do the dance. I was over the moon. So I, at this stage, right, bearing in mind, Freshers was September. My birthday is October 22nd. Within the space of Freshers finishing, creating that viral video, getting emailed by Lad Bible, I then went up uh, on, on the 20th of October mm. and stayed for a few days to create content with them. And then on the second night, I just said to them, oh yeah, by the way, guys, it's my birthday. And they were like, what? And I was like, yeah, it's my birthday. I just, but I wanted to come up and do this with Lad Bible when it meant so much to me. And they took me out on the biggest piss up ever on the, on the business card. And I just, yeah, it was a crazy night. We just filmed uh, the Hotline Bling video and they basically just introduced me to how they work. They were like, by the way, we work with a lot of content creators. If you're going to be in this industry, we suggest you make a page. Don't use your personal anymore. Um, this is how content works on Facebook. And they added me to group chats with other content creators. And they said that we'll tag you as well. So you're going to start getting loads of views mm -hmm. and loads of followers. And they started paying me, putting me up in hotels. And the Hotline Bling video of Drake got like over a million views on Lad Bible, which is like, you know, that's unbelievable. Yeah. But, but on Lad Bible, that's like normal. Like, well, so what were you thinking at this time? Were you like, I'm onto something here, I'm just going to take it a day at a time? Or were you starting to come up, come up with a strategy for where you wanted to take things? I've never had a strategy, man. Maybe I day should have been more strategist. But well, we were talking about that earlier. We'll get to that later. Yeah. Yeah. But I was just so over the moon, Johnny, that like I had done something in such a short space of time after being at uni for three years and managed to create something that worked. And that had got me in with Lad Bible. Like back then, even now, it's such a huge media platform. They're so recognized as a brand. Sure. To just be able to put that in my bio, uh, presenter at Lad Bible, it opened so many doors for mm -hmm. me. And that was what a decade ago. From I I'm not gonna lie, like I was hanging on to that Lad Bible name for years, bro. Like I was getting into events just because they saw that in my bio. Of course, yeah. Like I was getting more work because I'd done that. And they saw that you'd hosted a million view videos. Exactly. So, yeah. And I copy and pasted that link from Facebook and I sent it out in emails and then I made a media pack. And then I started reaching out to other brands, events, organizations saying, yo guys, what's up? I just graduated. I've done this video for Lad Bible. It's hit over a million views. And then because of that name, because they associate you with a brand, um, it, it, it kind of puts credit to your name. And then it, people who want to be associated with that want you to be involved with their stuff. So I started getting hired to do more things. And then as I did more things, um, BBC, Asian, uh, Asia, BBC Asian Network hit me up and they were like, hi, Faris, um, we see that you've done stuff with Lad Bible. Can you, do you want to come on as a, as a guest speaker on our show? So I, I went to Broadcast House and did a few of those shows. And then all of a sudden, then I've, I can now send links to videos that I've done radio for, B for BBC Asian Network. But so this was always as the host? 
This was basically joining other people's radio shows who are working full time for BBC Asia Network. Also as a kind of commentator. Yeah, yeah, like basically like a guest on their show. And they basically have different shows, different nights of the week with different presenters. And they put me on rotation for different shows. Okay, cool. And they'd send like a cab to my house. They'd drop me off, pick me up. And they basically say, you're going to be with this presenter today. We're talking about this uh, concept and we want you to think about these questions. And uh, again, it just added to the portfolio. So this was the birth of Farris Stinger as I, we know him now. I think it was. I think it was, bro. So you were doing video content. You were doing events. Mm. Day at a time. Thing I was about to ask when things really exploded, but that million video with Lad Bible was. Yeah. So what was the next kind of peak? What was the next like big thing that happened that was a game changer for you? Okay, so... After I was kind of the lad Bible guy who mm -hmm. presented street videos and did occasional radio at BBC Asia Network, there was a guy called Kai who ran a huge rave brand called Abode. He brought me on to see if what I do works in the rave community, in the house music scene. He said, I love what you do. I just don't know if it's going to work with people with their jaw swinging, everyone off their nut on yeah, drugs. Yeah. It's not been done before. So I said... I love that whole community. I think the party scene needs to have a bit more of a personality. It needs to have a voice. But the biggest hurdle was, do people really want to be filmed when you're sweating off your nut in a dark room on drugs and a guy walking around with a microphone is probably the last thing you want. So I had to really figure out how am I going to create this niche? How am I going to create a business out of what I love doing? I love partying. I love raves. I love festivals. How am I going to go to these places with a cameraman and a microphone and create something that's going to bring value to these event organizations, to these PR companies, yeah. to these to these festivals and raves that, you know, they live by increasing their brand, hiring acts and selling tickets. My like My initial view would be, Maybe in the moment, they love it. Yeah. But then like the next day, two days later, three days later, four days later, they see themselves on video, complaint or regrets or anything. Oh, that. Johnny, you're, you're reading my mind here. Because <laughs> basically there was times, do you know how many times me or my cameraman have received a message the next day saying, I think down. you've interviewed me and my friend last night. Can you please not use it? Can you please delete it? Yeah. Especially when it's ended up on a viral meme page. Like I, I also present for I'm Just Bait Now, who is uh, probably one of the biggest urban meme pages in the UK. They've got like 5 million followers and they send me out to cover funny stuff. And when people end up on pages like that, it really annoys people. But well, what like you said with their jaw swinging around, it's not really good for like future employment prospects or yeah. like family events. Do you yeah. know what? I get it. I actually no, no, of course. I get it. Makes it. Sense. I, I get it. Yeah. If, if you're going to... If you're out to have fun with your friends and you're going to be off your nut on drugs, drinking booze, you're probably not going to be very connected to your senses and you're going to say dumb shit and then you're going to be, you know, held accountable. But the other half of me is like, why jump in front of a camera and start saying these things confidently? Well, why are you saying because they're absolutely off their nut. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's such a catch for me too, because I know that they don't want to be seen to be saying these things, but I also know that they um they they were okay to do it in the moment. And that if, if my job is to capture that content, by the time we filmed and edited it, if you then have a problem with it after you've changed your mind, when you're in a more sober space, where's the line? Mm. Where's the line between, okay, we need to go back and tell the client, and sorry, you knew what you were doing, it's out of my hands now. Well, so I suppose it was your job as the content catcher and creator to figure out how to balance that line. Exactly. And because no one had really done what I've done in the way that I did it, there were so many things I had to figure out, Johnny. I had to figure out how do I split budgets with people that are hiring me with the bare minimum, bearing in mind I still got to pay a videographer to film and edit, mm. get press passes to be able to have permission to even film mm. in a venue, and then also get people willing to stop and talk to me whilst they're off their nut on drugs. Yeah, And then on top of that, the, the you know the PR company or the event organizers taking a risk on me because they're like we've just brought this guy in because we like him and we think what he does is cool if it's gonna you know f up our business or have any kind of backlash with the venue yeah. or if he's gonna interview people on drugs and it looks bad on us we don't want that your lecture did try to tell you there'd be complications in the industry oh mate exactly <laughs> just that one. just not ones like that so I basically uh, from the space of graduating for the last five to eight years I've really had to go out there and just figure out how I do this and what I do because 
The beautiful thing about what I do is that when I get hired, I don't get given a script. I don't get told where to be. Mm. I don't get told how to do it. They, and even when I ask the client sometimes, I'm like, um, I've got my microphone, here's my videographer. What do you want me to do? They look at me and they're like, mate, you do you, like do your 100%. thing. Well, that's why they're hiring you, right? As a content creator. Exactly. Yeah. And I'm, I'm really, I was really, I felt I was really overwhelmed by that. And it took me a while to get used to it. Cause I was like, when you're hired to do a job, you, you, you normally get told how to do the job, but because they just see me do it for other people, they just said, just do your thing. I've got enough to worry about. I'm running a whole festival here. So I didn't realize it's my responsibility to take more of just a content creator role. It wasn't just my job to present or host a video. It wasn't just my job to go around and interview people or manage a videographer. It was my job to make sure it's a feasible project. It was my job to make sure we get paid. It was my job to make sure it works. Like I had to figure out in the venues where the light's good, where there's not too much sound from the bass or where the music's coming mm -hmm. from and find little pockets of space around venues to just ask people, can I quickly interview you? Can we get two minutes of your time? Girls, are you enjoying yourself? Like, you know, get the DJ if we can. That was a big one. Yeah. Cause you know, they've got their, their management and their labels behind them. They're saying F off, who's this random guy with a microphone trying to interview Idris Elba or Cardi B? And these are all people that I've managed to just grab quickly for two minutes because I've just been cheeky. Yeah. You don't ask, you don't get. Yeah, yeah. So I've just been, got to the stage where Kai took the chance on me and then Abode would kind of present me as their presenter. Mm -hmm. Then I'd get hired by other raves, you know, uh, Hotbed, Elro, um, We Are Fest, uh, SW4, Lovebox. It got to the stage where I was like, oh my God, I'm covering so many festivals. I've now, I'm now not just the guy who's done a video for Lad Bible. I can now say that I am the guy who goes around festivals. I am the guy who goes around raves. I am the guy who goes around launch uh, parties, movie premieres, and I could hire more videographers to do more things. And the big, uh, the budgets got bigger as well. Mm -hmm. So then I could start telling people, sorry, we're not just running around like idiots for like just our expenses. We now can get paid and we can split that between us. So suddenly videographers who weren't willing to build with me were popping up. That was a big problem. I had people who I'd message after uni and be like, can we please just um, go and do this? There's a celebrity, there's a chance we can interview this person, we could go there. And they'd be like, yeah, this is my day rate. And I'd be like, bro, I'm not even getting paid myself. Yeah. See the people who rejected you at the start. Yeah. Do they want to work with you now? Oh, mate. The amount of like content creators, videographers, cameramen, editors who now want to create content and collaborate. I'm like, mate, I've got like three other videographers that are doing it with me anyway now. And they've been with me from the start. And they've been with me from the start. Everybody wants to grab onto the coattails. Oh, mate. If only uh, you could, uh, you know what? I said to these people for years, um, trust me, we're onto something. I could get in with a major record label if we keep creating content for this festival. Trust me, this PR company have budget. Trust me, this event organizer is onto big things. They didn't want to know. They didn't want to hear because I was just one guy who's done a video for Lad Bible yeah. and they were like, but I, under I get it. Again, I get it. Why would you work for free? Yeah, but I get, I, I get it would have been taking a gamble, but you've got to have some, the fact they have the, balls to come back yeah after and because i'm sure the whatsapp message the instagram dm you sent originally is still mm. there being like hey you know i'd love you to do a video mm -hmm. they're then like oh man this virus guy's blown up they go and see that they rejected you and then they try and reach out and it's there on the record for both of you it takes a bit of balls to make that move you say i know you said don't ask don't get but they should have a bit of shame yeah i do appreciate that and there there are moments where i've kind of try to evaluate in my head, like, am I being stubborn and bitter? Uh, am I am I now choosing to... Well, you've got your loyal guys you've worked with. It's not that you're being better. Maybe they deserve it. That's just my view. Here I am. This is about you, and here's me implementing my views. But I think, no, you know, the guys who gave you a chance, the guys who were with you from the start, mm. that's loyalty. Yeah, and I'll never forget that. And I always respect and appreciate those people. And in fact... <laughs> most if not all of the videographers who took the gamble with me have had it paid off times 10. I've brought them all paid work. Mm -hmm. I've connected them to so many people in my network and they have benefited from that. Some even more than me. Like some now work full time for like artists. Uh, they tour around the world with major record labels. They work, uh, you know, freelance with clients that I've introduced them to. And I'm so happy for them. I'm, I'm like, that's amazing. That's great. If anything, I'm, I'm so relieved because I'm like, I've brought you value back when you brought me value. You know, I'm sure it's not most videographers wouldn't want to run around with some freelancer for free in the rain interviewing people. But they did it. They did it.
One second, sorry. We're definitely going to run over. Am I okay to cover that after? Okay, cool. Is that right? Um, is yeah, what's yeah. time? So, that's oh, okay, about down. 10, 15 minutes, right? Yeah. Is that all right? I'm, I'll pay after to make it up. Yeah. Okay, thanks, Philippe. Um, so, sorry, I am renting a studio in London and me and Faris grabbed a wee bite, had a catch up, ran slightly late. So, you now get to see behind the inner workings of trying to do a podcast. There's <laughs> always complications, especially when you want a beautiful setup like this. Yeah. Sorry, so. I do miss the days of my old microphone and uh, light setup. <laughs> so, Faris, um, I guess going back to you doing raves and setting the events, mm -hmm. you could re you reached what I guess some people would call the pinnacle of that scene, what some people would dream to do. You connected with a certain Lineker and then you started doing events, raves in Ibiza. Mm -hmm. You were the video guy for... Ibiza Bible, yep. was it? Please tell us how that came about. Wow, I'm glad you asked that actually, Johnny, because um, that helps this whole story go full circle now. Yeah. Because um, from going from the guy at university who did one video, got him a Vlad Bible, BBC Asia Network, then became the festival and rave guy, exactly that question started to come into my head. I had friends popping up from university, like, bro, you're onto something, keep doing what you're doing. But then it was also like, okay, how many festivals and raves can you cover until it's just the same? I know I knew I could repeat the formula to many different brands, organizations and events. But then how many times do I do that until people are onto the next thing? Mm -hmm. Someone younger comes along. It just doesn't work anymore. Fair, yeah. Those interviews, you know, the event organizers and PR companies used to market their content, which sold more tickets. But then I got to the stage where I was like, right, I've emailed almost every festival or rave in the UK. Um, is that really going to be my only income for the rest of my life? And what if that stops? You need to have a you know a backup plan. Not even a backup plan as like a as like a failure. Backup plan is in like how can I go to the next level now? How can I go beyond just festivals and raves? So then people said to me, I'll never forget. They said, "Mate, I'm surprised you haven't gone to Ibiza yet. That's like the mecca of partying. Like that's where festivals and raves come from." So I was like, I always said to myself, I, I, I will go there if if my my journey takes me there. If mm. my career takes me there, I'll go. I'm not just going to go book a flight to party. I don't just want to go and be off my nut on drugs. Do you know what I mean? I want to yeah. go to Ibiza with a purpose. I wanted to go there with a plan. And um, I'll never forget Kai. Remember who I was telling you about? Yeah, he brought yeah. me in with a boat. He um, hired me to do interviews for an event called Hotbed about two years ago. He said, I want you to interview um, the, the live performers, the DJs, um, and we've got some special guests coming, uh, one of them being Wayne Lineker. And I knew of Wayne Lineker because of social media, and I knew that he was like the UK Dan Bilzerian, had multiple businesses in Ibiza. So I said, you know what? I'm gonna do this job for cheap because I really wanna meet Wayne Lineker. So I went with my videographer, uh, we did the video for Hotbed and we interviewed the special guests. And when it got to Wayne Lineker, we had a really nice, genuine conversation. Hotbed is his favorite event. At, okay. And uh, we got talking about it. And I, after the interview, I said to him, I looked him in the eye and I said, mate, that was really cool. I feel like we could get on really well. And I'd love to chat to you about how I could do what I do and apply it for your businesses. And he just said, absolutely, take my number. And from that day, we set up a meeting at London Waterloo Station. We mapped out what I do and how I can apply that to becoming his content creator and applying my video services to his businesses. And since then, in the last two years, we've flown to Uganda. We did a uh, documentary for a charity organization called The Abode Project, okay, which cool. is one of Kai's side hustles. And then from there, he was like, right, we're going to Ibiza. I did my first season in Ibiza with Wayne. So how was balancing the working side with the wanting to have fun and party side. It must be tough. Everyone's having a good time around you and you're having to keep on your business head. Bro, it's so hard. <laughs> you don't understand how hard it is to be at the party, at the rave, at the festival all the time. And it's your job. Yeah. So like, You're I'm, not really allowed to enjoy it till you finish it. <laughs> Mate, and I love it. Do you know what I mean? I'm, I think I'm always going to love it. Yeah. And when you're with people like Wayne, who also love it, I have to team up with videographers who don't love it as much as I do because they keep me disciplined, they keep me focused. Um, shout out to Matt Shum, he is one of the best at doing it. He literally tells me we have not got enough interviews, that was not good enough. And he tells me when we're done, and then he's like, you can go party now. And he doesn't like, you know, the sesh, so he- He just, holds you accountable. Yeah, and then he goes home and edits 
which is like a dream for me. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, you don't want to... I've worked with videographers who I've actually fallen out with, and it's a shame because we started off as really good friends. We have the same interests, so much in common, but it doesn't work. Mm. If you both just want to party and you both don't like doing the boring stuff, it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. So I've fallen out because I've brought videographers into jobs, introduced them to my network, my clients, and then they've effed up on some jobs. Um, so yeah, over the last, since I met Wayne, right? So let, let, just before, okay, so since that, you know, I started becoming the rave festival guy, I've done festivals in Thailand, Dubai, Miami, cruise ship parties, and it got to the stage where I was like, wow, I'm literally living the dream. I'm getting paid to fly around the world and do what I love. And I was so grateful, Johnny. But then that real big jump, that leap that took me to the next level was when Wayne brought me to Ibiza. I did my first season two years ago. I started presenting for Ibiza Bible. I was creating content for him. Brands on the island were hitting us up. I was getting cut into deals because people couldn't even get through to Wayne because he doesn't even look at all of his DMs. Right. So just by being his content creator, Wayne was bringing me in on projects and deals and business that I would never ever dream to be involved in because um, you know, he's like a big name. He's like, you know, he's the king of Ibiza. Mm -hmm. Like Ocean Beach is now such a big hub. It's, I think it's the most Instagrammed beach club in the world. So I was thrown into this scene that I, I've only dreamt of, Johnny, to be around these DJs, these reality TV stars, these athletes, these models, these influencers, mm. and then get known in that scene to be in these circles and be hired to go and do what I do in a place that loves to party. This was like everything for me. I got more work in Ibiza in my first season than I did in London. And I'm guessing this was six months before, I don't want to be dramatic, things came crashing down. So you went from an extreme high to coronavirus. Mate, this, you, you, I love the way you asked that because it just shows how the journey's just been like this. Yeah. This is when- Well, I, I witnessed it from, I guess it was the December after, mm. but I've been able to see, get a good idea of how that was. But hearing it from you would be perfect. So just before the pandemic, that's the best my life has ever been. I was getting paid regularly to do what I love, fly around the world like it was nothing, and be with the people and in the circles and scenes that are at you know the pinnacle of my industry. Then the pandemic happened. I don't think, any, uh, I don't know if I'm speaking for myself here, but I didn't really take it seriously in the beginning. I thought this is just the news, chatting shit. It's going to just blow over in a week. You know, two years later, we're still in the same mess. But I remember covering London Fashion Week uh, for a media agency called Buzz. And that was the last job I did before we went into lockdown. Mm. And I remember doing it like it was not nothing to worry about. Mm -hmm. And then... How do I even explain the pandemic? So, okay, I know how to explain it. Well, you're creative in your jobs, interviewing people. So that was just So imagine, gone. so imagine I've created this little niche for myself as a self-employed freelancer, where my job is to go to parties, restaurants, hotels, bars, clubs, raves, and festivals and interview people. And then a pandemic happens where all of that closes and you have to socially distance and you have to wear masks and you have to see in your own little groups. That took away 100% of my work. Yeah. I had to adapt and evolve and sell myself in a different way so that people don't need to be near me. I, I wasn't willing to be like, oh, oh, my niche is destroyed. Oh, the pandemic has messed me up. Oh, you know, I'm going to blame COVID-19 for everything because too many people were doing that. Sure. That's boring. I didn't want to be like a, a product of, you know, what's happened to the world. I was I was going out regardless, man. Like I'll be honest, like I, there was certain things that were probably a bit of a grey area. Like there were certain times we were probably, you know, it wasn't illegal to go out and film, but it certainly suggested to not go out and film. The government did a lot of that. Do you know what I mean? Okay. So I knew I wasn't breaking the law, and I wasn't willing to sit at home and do f all. I wanted to go out, create content. So instead of filming festivals and raves, I said, let me go out and just show what the world is like at the moment. Let me go and cover protests. Let me go and film people marching down the street shouting with their masks on. Let me go and ask people about politics and the government, an area I am not educated in in the slightest. But again, I, I adapted and evolved. I didn't want to just be a product of the, the pandemic. I didn't want to turn around in five to 10 years and be like, I've lost two years of my life because there was, there was a virus going around that made us sit at home. I even, I even pissed off some of my family. They were just like, what are you doing? Like we're in a pandemic. 
be considerate for other people. I'm like, uh, there's, there's things going on. There's, there's, there's jobs coming in where people are actually hiring me to go out and talk about the pandemic. Which is interesting because this is when I became aware of you. Yeah. Not saying, oh my God. obviously, don't get me wrong, I have a lot of love for the club scene, but this is when you started making that meaningful content. And I remember the video I saw was, it was you walking the streets of London, mm. asking people how lockdown was for them, giving them a chance to open up and share. And a lot of it was pain, and sadness and stories of the human struggle of what people had been through. Bro, that is actually crazy to hear you say that because wow, maybe this pandemic made me grow. Now that you've just sort of asked me it in that way, you've made me feel like actually that, that, that could have been a blessing in disguise because I would have just carried on with raves and festivals. And even though I was at like the peak of it, if that pandemic didn't happen, I wouldn't have gone out and covered meaningful content. Uh, meaningful con uh, content, sorry. Yeah, and we speak a lot about that now since. That's, that's so it is a large part of your production now. And personal journey because it made me more aware of politics. It made me more aware of how other people are and what they're going through. It would have made me, uh, it's actually the reason why I started creating content about mental health, which is how we connected. Yep. So in the start of the pandemic, I realized that there's more to life than just partying. You know, there's not just the rave or the festival. There's actually real shit going on right now. Like there's people wearing masks, there's people dying. There's government conspiracy theories. There's people protesting outside um, Boris Johnson's house every single week. And I was just like, when that happened, I was just like, wow, like th this is maybe a chance for me to sh show people that I'm not just this guy who loves the sesh and goes to festivals and raves to party. Um, he can actually cover real shit. And uh, I don't think I've ever received enough praise and messages um, from when I covered the Black Lives Matter stuff as well. Mm -hmm. um, because I, I didn't just cover like the left side, I covered the right side as well. And I don't think I've ever been as scared as I was in my life to do that as well, because um, I, was, I remember going out and people saying, you don't want to create content today. And I said, why? And they said, mate, I, re I have so much respect that you've put a light on mental health, put a light on how people are getting on during lockdowns, because what it did, it made people be more aware of how it affects younger people as well. You know, some people couldn't go to school, some people mm -hmm. can't go to uni, some people can't go to work, some people now on universal credit. I asked people all these questions, right? I made like a documentary about what's going on in the coronavirus pandemic. And I interviewed like professional doctors with their masks on, had to be two meters away. And I loved it. I, I, I felt growth within myself. I felt like there's more to life than festivals and raves. You're doing something meaningful now that's bringing value to the world. Mm -hmm. I don't care if they get a hundred views or a million views. I'm creating this because it's important. And I stopped caring about the money. I, I obviously stopped getting a bit hired by raves and festivals, but what it was doing is so much more valuable than just a quick little job. It was making people message me saying, thank you, you really helped me because I'm in isolation with my grandparents and I didn't know how to wear a mask properly or I didn't know what the symptoms are. Mm. Because all these little questions I was answering from just talking to people, um, it was just helping a lot. So how do you feel about that? You look like you've had a slight breakthrough. Yeah, mate, if anything, it, I think the best way to, to explain it is a blessing in disguise, bro. Like, um, just, 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 just more, more, res I don't want to use the word respect because I, I'm not someone who demands respect or praise or love, but it's like, just more people, I'm so grateful that people look- taking you seriously. Yeah, yeah. it took me a bit more seriously. Before, I'm just this party guy who freelances around the world and, you know, people are always going to love to party. So that's always great to shine a light on people having the good times. But to be able to have gone out and just really put myself in the deep end, um, I felt so uncomfortable, mate. I, I, I never pretended that I knew a lot about politics or the government. So or the learning experience. Yeah. Learning as I go, bro. Yeah. That's how I see what I do. I don't go in with a script. I don't think of many questions in advance. I just connect to the person that's in front of me and do what feels right. And if, if anything, I see myself as like a vessel for whoever's hired me to go and figure things out and then bring back knowledge wisdom value so if, if in return for being a vessel and putting myself out there on the front line um the love that comes back is getting hired to do what i love so where are you now what's the plans where's this i know you said you take it data time strategy mm. but we seem to have come out the end yeah things are picking back up mm -hmm. i'm sure there's events and stuff you know going back to what you used to do mm -hmm. how are you planning on balancing what you're doing, what you've grown and learned from mm -hmm. with your bread and butter that you still love. What's, what are you up to? 
So now that we're kind of near the end, or touch word, near the end of this mess of a pandemic, um, I've started to get some of my old clients popping up again, saying, hey, Farris, this is looking to be Ibiza's biggest summer. Uh, first time the super clubs have opened in the last two years. Um, we want you to do this, this and that. So I've got like my bread and butter jobs, as you say. There's some festivals that I have my eye on that I really would love to cover because mm -hmm. just for the pure passion of it. Yeah. But I'm also now at a stage in my life where I've realized that I'm so much more than that. I've realized that I'm so much more than just going to parties and asking people off their nut funny questions. And I wouldn't have got to that stage in my life if it wasn't for the pandemic because I wouldn't have created content around mental health. I wouldn't have covered protests about the government and I wouldn't have learned more about um, how people are affected by the pandemic. Well, so how are you going to make sure you don't backtrack? I think for me, the key word is balance. Again, I say I'm not spiritual, but here we go again. Um, I'm a Libra, right? And that's all about a scale of balance. That's what the symbol is. So I feel like it's a personal duty of responsibility to represent balance, something that I've been very bad at having in my life. So I always use that as like uh, a navigation to remind myself of what I need to hold on to, balance. So as long as I get hired enough by my bread and butter jobs, it's okay to be the party guy. It's okay to love the sesh. It's okay to create content for festivals and raves, but be a bit self-aware of other things that are going on in the life and other opportunities that can lead you to bigger and better things. That's the way I'm kind of looking at my life right now because I'm like, parties and raves are always going to be there, but there's only so much energy in my soul to entertain that. You know, I'm not getting any younger. There's going to be younger people who want to do that for free. Yeah. What do I do then? So I'd rather be three, four, five steps ahead, um, cover more meaningful things, cover things that relate to me as I grow. You know, people change. So I want to change with my content. I want to now start thinking about the future. I want to now also realize that I can do this for that community. I can do this for this community. And as long as I focus on side projects, create new hustles, um, I feel like I'll always end up in the right place. Nice. I would say that's a nice note to end on, Faris, because that was I like I love that insight. Yeah. But one last question for the audience. I keep changing the wording of this, but what I really like to get is a piece of value. So the way I like to look at it is what is something, one thing mm -hmm. you think you know that a lot of other people don't that you think is just like should be common sense wisdom. Wow, about life in general? Yeah, life, work, a lesson you've learned that you're like, this is something that's stuck with me. Wow. At least you're proving I don't send this to people beforehand and I catch them on the spot. I love this. And I hope I can give a raw, honest answer without overthinking it. But I would say... One of the biggest lessons I've I've learned on my journey, um, personal, socially, professionally, is I've disrespected myself a lot by investing too much energy into things that aren't giving me energy back. Mm. So the biggest lesson I would say that I've learned that I would love to share with other people is only invest energy into things and people that are giving you the same energy back. Um, professionally, socially. There's jobs that I've emailed that I'd love to be a part of, create projects with, collaborate, film content with, ignored my emails. I'll send more emails. I'll message someone that knows them to message them. And it's clear that they just don't want to work with me. So mm. I've just wasted so much energy and disrespecting myself. There's girls who I've just DM'd more than once, DM'd again. And then I'm just like, they don't even follow me back. And I'm just like trying to spend my time, effort and money on them. And as I was saying to you before, bro, like there's some girls who I've met in my industry who are just trying to grab the next opportunity. They're mm -hmm. just trying to go to the next, to the next, do you know what I mean? Yeah. So they're willing to navigate through people like it's nothing. Yeah. And it's sad. And I don't want to ever sound like I'm just bashing women because I'm genuinely not. Like I was raised by a single mother. I have a sister. I have so much love for women. You just felt used. Yeah, there's been times where I've just felt used, bro. There's been times where I've felt used in my industry, in my social circles, 
especially, you know, being the guy who creates content for Raves and Festival, we live in a generation where people love going to these things. So I felt like sometimes girls have only spoken to me for access or opportunity. Yeah. And, um, you know, as you know, like I'm, I am one for getting attached at times, you know, I catch feelings quick. So there's been times where I've just hoped that girls showed me a bit of love and respect as I've shown to them. Hmm. So the biggest lesson I've learned, which applies to my social life and professional life is only invest energy into those that are giving you the same energy back because often we're led by emotion and we're blinded with lust, desire, temptation, whether it's a job you really want hmm. or a person you really want. And then what ends up happening is you build expectation in your head and then you're disappointed with the end result. So you can remove that expectation by doing things purely out of love and respect, mm -hmm. but being aware that you're not mugging yourself off with the energy you're putting out. If you put 50% energy out and someone puts 50% back, great. You're matching That's mutual. energy. You're yeah. matching energy. Build that together. Whether it's professionally or socially, you are both building together. That's how I want to work with people. That's how I want to date with women. But... If I'm putting 80% in and you're giving me 20% and that 20% is just to keep me happy so that I'm there on mm -hmm. the sideline. Like a certain top up sort of level. Yeah, oh, I'll keep him happy. I'll give him some replies. Yeah, yeah. I'll insinuate that we'll date one day. I'll pretend that I've been busy. I hate that one. We could do a whole podcast on that. <laughs> we all have 24 hours in a day. I don't care if you run five businesses or you know whatever you do, we, we all can reply. Sure. Um, I don't care if you, sorry, I was gonna say, I don't care if you run five businesses or five countries. Everyone is more than capable of replying and getting back to you. People do what they want to do. People do what they want to do. And we prioritize our time, effort and money on what we want to prioritize it on. That is such a big thing I've learned, Johnny. And I've just thought, when you realize that and it sinks in, you just, oh, <laughs> you just go, oh, I don't need closure. I don't need an apology. I don't need someone to justify why they haven't given me energy back. It's clear that you don't value me or my time. So when that sunk in, I only work with people who already value me. I don't need to prove to you why you need to hire me. If you want to hire me, you hire me. Same with a woman. If you want to come and date with me, if you want to talk to me, if you want to hang out, you want to do it. You don't need to just justify why you're busy. Good note to end on. Something people learn as they get older, I think. Faris, thank you very much for coming on. Right, thank you so much for this. It's been amazing. And there you have it. I love Faris's story. I really enjoy working with the guy. Hopefully from that episode, you got a sense of just his energy, his positivity, his enthusiasm. Hopefully you got some lessons from his experience. And as always, if you enjoyed it, please leave a review on Apple, Spotify, whatever you're listening. The short form video content is always going on the Instagram page at the Story Club podcast. And as always, thank you so much for taking the time to listen. I really hope it was worthwhile for you and I will catch you again with a new episode next week.